Hey, I wanted to begin this morning by asking you a question. So, and maybe this question gets at maybe something that for you has created some doubts, and maybe even for some of you, it has caused you to even step away from your faith, or, uh, you know, you just can't believe like you used to. Uh, maybe some of you haven't thought about this, or it hasn't bothered you, but uh, the question is this, has it ever seemed to you like there is an odd disparity or disconnect between your experience of the Christian life and the way it seems like the first Christians experienced the Christian life as read in the New Testament. In other words, you you read the New Testament and it seems like you enter into this world where there is healings and exorcisms and uh, signs and wonders. And in our experience, by comparison, can seem a little mundane and boring in church, you know? And, and we wonder about that. Like, what, what are we to make of that disconnect, of that disparity? Uh, so several years ago now, um, John Wimber, uh, for those of you who don't know, John Wimber is the founder of the Vineyard Movement. It's a large movement of churches. But before he became a follower of Jesus, he described himself as, quote, a beer-guzzling, drug-addicted pop musician. Interestingly, uh, just a little factoid, he toured with the Righteous Brothers, um, who came to Christ chain-smoking his way through a Quaker-led Bible study. And after his conversion, he quickly became this voracious Bible reader. And, and he especially loved the Gospels, and he especially loved what he called the stuff. He, he just, he said, I loved all the stuff Jesus did, you know, turning water into wine and multiplying the, the loaves and the fishes and healing the sick and giving sight to the blind. He says, I just loved all the stuff. And, 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 and one day he, he came to his, his Quaker Bible study teacher and he said, he said hey, um, he said, I've been, I've been reading through the, the Gospels and, and I've been reading about all of the stuff Jesus did, you know, it's just all this stuff. And, and so he turned to the Bible teacher and he said, he said, so... He said, when do we get to do the stuff? And the Bible teacher was a little flummoxed, and, and, and he replied, uh, we don't do the stuff anymore. To which John Wimber responded, you mean I gave up drugs for this? <laughs> now, I, I'm not sure about Wimber's desire early on to do the stuff, But I do think he's naming something. He's identifying something that I think a lot of us have experienced. You read in the New Testaments about all this healing and exorcisms and and all this exciting, and then you kind of look at our own church life, our own Christian experience by comparison, and, and we wonder about it. And we wonder, does God still work like that today? Does God still do the stuff today? And do we get to do the stuff you know, do we get to participate in healings and exorcisms? And, and it, it seems like so many of these early Christians did this stuff. And what about us? So we, we've been in a series entitled To the Ends of the Earth. And we have been asking throughout this series, what is it that made the early church so incredibly compelling and effective? I mean, these first Christians, they went from 120 scared disciples huddled away in an upper room to a few hundred years later becoming the largest movement in the Roman Empire, transforming the entire place, eventually becoming the largest movement in human history. And we just wonder, what was their effectiveness? 
And we've been talking about that over the last few weeks. We've talked about the power of the Spirit. Uh, We've talked together about the message they preached. And today, I want to talk about the stuff they did. I want to talk about how their own ministry of the gospel was accompanied by signs and wonders. And it's interesting, you know, um, Luke even identifies, the very first verse of of the book of Acts, it puts it like this. He describes this book, the the work of the early church, as what um, he, he he said in his former book, he talked about what Jesus began to do and teach. And now the implication is, is that throughout the book of Acts, we're going to be reading about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. And so we just wonder is the stuff that we read about in Acts, is that the stuff Jesus continues to do in and through us in our world today? And so what I want to do is, uh, here's how we're going to do this today, is I want to do a little kind of general flyover of chapters two through five, and and note especially uh, where it talks about signs and wonders. And then I want to stand back and make three simple observations, and then I want us to reflect on what it all might mean for us. And um, so let's just start right at the beginning. So in Acts chapter 2, you remember, Peter preaches this brilliant sermon, and the crowds get convicted. They are cut to the heart, and they say, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. And then it says this about them. It says, and they, all of these new converts, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So they were devoted. And what were they devoted to? Well, pretty standard stuff, to the apostles' teaching. That's the stories about Jesus, the ethical teaching of Jesus, the way of Jesus. They were devoted to it and to the prayers and to the fellowship and and the gathering together. And, um, but then he goes on and he says this in verse 23. And it says, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So I think a lot of us know, we're real familiar in church with the apostles' teaching, uh, fellowship, breaking of bread, breaking of bread, donuts, tri-tip, come on, prayers, But signs and wonders, we're like, what's that about? But awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So it turns out that they were doing the kind of stuff that Jesus did. And as you move it into chapter 3, he gives one dramatic example. You know, we might be wondering, like, well, what kind of signs and wonders were they doing? In chapter 3, verse 1, he gives this dramatic example of the kind of thing that was happening all the time. And it happened while Peter and John were on their way to the temple to pray. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Uh, the, The Jews in the first century would go and worship at the temple in the morning and in the afternoon at nine o'clock and at three o'clock. Three o'clock was the afternoon hour of prayer. There'd be sacrifices made, the incense would go up, and then the people would gather together and pray. Uh, The incense would be a symbol of their own prayers rising to God. And of course, the early Christians, the first Christians were devout Jews, and so they continued in this practice of going to the temple to pray. And while he's on 
his way to the temple to offer sacrifices, I mean, to, to not Peter and John aren't going to offer sacrifices, but to pray, they, they encounter this man who is lame from birth, a beggar at the temple. Now, we don't know why he's lame and um, how that happened, and it's not explained. What we know is that in this moment, his inexplicable hurt encounters the faithful witness and compassion of the two disciples. Because look what it says. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And they said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So Peter, the text says, directed his gaze at him. Their eyes met. And it's interesting, you know, oftentimes we avert our gaze when we are confronted with human pain and need. But here, Peter and John fix their gaze upon the man in pain and suffering. Commentator Willie James Jennings puts it like this. He says, before praises go up to God, the poor and lame, sick and pained must be seen. This man is precisely the person Jesus will see and demands his disciples to see also. Well, Peter and John see him, and the man needs money, he's begging, but Peter has no money to give, and, um, but he has arguably something better. Look at what he says. Peter said, look, I have no silver or gold. Did anybody else learn that little song in children's ministry? Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have in my name. Okay, come on. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up. And, anyway, that's what he said. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And uh, in the song it goes, he went walking and leaping and praising. Come on, let's go. But he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up. He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. So in the name that is in the authority of the risen and exalted Jesus, this man's body is made whole. He is touched by the creator and given strength in his limbs. And I love it. He doesn't just walk and he doesn't just praise, but the text says he went around leaping. And I, I just love that language. And uh, look, look at the response. So they're out, they're doing this in public, and look, the crowds. It says, and all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple. They're like, hey, is that that? Is that Jim who was always sitting by the temple? Like, what's going on with him? And uh, he was asking for alms, and they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And so they're like, how and what? And so Peter speaks up and he, and he says this. He says, look, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And then he says this. He makes it clear. It's not us. It was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are all witnesses. And then he puts it like this. He says, and his name, by his authority, that's what he means by the name, 
by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now note, the object of our faith when it comes to healing is not the strength of our faith. You know, oftentimes, you know, we, we kind of think this way. We think like, if I just believe, you know, some of us, even if, you know, we didn't ever grow up with like the prosperity gospel or kind of Pentecostal, we just think if I just believe enough, you know, but the object of your faith is not the strength of your faith. The object of our faith is the risen and exalted Jesus who holds all authority in heaven and on earth. And by his power, this man was made strong. Now, the crowds are just astounded by what has been done in the name of Jesus, and a great number of them come to believe in him on that day. It says that the church then grew from 3,000 to 5,000, and so people are just stunned, and they're full of wonderment and joy at all of what's happening around them, but it turns out that not everyone is happy. And uh, it turns out that the same religious leaders that didn't like what Jesus did are not liking what his followers are doing. And so uh, they, they, um, they go and they apprehend the disciples and they take them into custody and they begin to threaten them and uh, begin to interrogate them. And they're asking them like, who do you think you are and what are you doing and by whose name are you doing this? And look at Peter's response to them. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you all. Now, they don't like the answer, but they don't see that there's really anything that they can do uh, to the disciples because the crowds are so stunned and they would get upset with the religious leaders if they did something wrong to them. And, and now, eventually, things will get worse. The disciples will get arrested again. On their next occasion, they'll get beat up by those same religious leaders. And then a little bit beyond that, they'll be the first martyr of the church, Stephen, who will be stoned to death by those religious leaders. But on this occasion, they're released and... What do they do? Well, after being released, they go back to the group of disciples and they pray. And I want you to see what they pray for. They're released, they go, they pray, look what they pray for. They, they said this, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. God, we need you to embolden us because they are threatening to hurt us and we're scared, give us courage and boldness. While they pray, you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And notice, both prayers are answered. Uh, they walk out of the room and it says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. But not only did God answer their prayer for boldness, God clearly answered their prayer to demonstrate his power with great signs and wonders and healings. Because look at, look at chapter 5. There's a summary description of the church, and look how it puts it. And now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. 
So they were not odd and rare. They were regularly done. And there was not just a couple, but there was many. And then it goes on, it describes it like this. They even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, as a result of the healings that was confirming the witness to the risen Jesus, many, many people came to believe. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. Now, take a deep breath. You just went through a lot of Bible. Don't you feel good? You just went through a lot of Bible. I want to stand back, and I just want to talk for a little bit and, and, and make, make a few observations about what we just read, and then I want to stand back and just ask, what might this have to do with us today? In other words, is the risen and exalted Jesus, is his power still at work in our lives and in our world in a way that's similar to what we're reading about in the text? So let's make three observations. Number one. Uh, number one observation about the stuff, you know, um, is that in these opening chapters, the signs, the wonders, the healings, the exorcisms, they are there to authenticate the message of the gospel. They are there to confirm that the witness of the apostles is true. They are there to affirm that when the apostles say that Jesus is risen and exalted in the highest seat of cosmic authority, it means that Jesus is currently reigning in the highest seat of cosmic authority, and that power and that authority is at work on earth to heal people. And it is manifest, it's authenticated by the healings that were happening in their midst. John Wimber puts it like this. He says, Christian signs and wonders are beyond rationality, but they serve a rational purpose to authenticate the gospel. Signs and wonders validate Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his lordship over every area of our lives. Which, incidentally, this is why these kind of signs of wonders, both in the first century and in the centuries following, have always come on the scene when the gospel moves into new places in order to authenticate for new audiences that this message is true. Now, I think it's also important to point out that they are there to authenticate the message of the gospel as it travels among new peoples in new places. Signs and wonders are not the fuel that the church runs on. Or we could put it like this, you know, in a car, I think it's like this in a car. You know, it, it, it takes a spark, right, to get the engine going, but the engine runs on gasoline. Was that correct? It does run on gasoline, I know that. Um, but signs and wonders are like the spark of the movement of the gospel. It's not the fuel that the church runs on. Interestingly, you know, in the early uh, 70s, Vineyard, which was a movement of churches, split from Calvary Chapel movements uh, over this issue 
because Calvary Chapel was sort of of the mindset that actually the, the fuel that the church is going to run on is not regular, you know, signs and wonders. We're not going to be seeking. Instead, it's devotion to the apostles' doctrine, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. That's the fuel that nourishes and sustains the life of the church. The signs and wonders are there initially to get the movements going and to confirm and to authenticate the gospel. Secondly, I think what we see in these opening chapters is that the stuff, these signs and wonders are not only there to authenticate the gospel, they are also there to serve as a foretaste of the kingdom. Now, I didn't read this verse to you, but um, in um, chapter 3, a little bit further, Peter speaks about the restoration of all things. In other words, the day is coming, he says, when all things will come underneath the saving, healing, restorative rule of King Jesus. All things will be made healed and new. And so the healing that breaks out in this age as we wait for that great day are like a little foretaste. It's like um, when you go to Costco and you're wandering around the, you know, the aisles and they got those gorgeous little booths with their free samples and you go over there and you just get that little bite of um, lasagna and you just get a foretaste of what it's gonna be like when you buy all 35 pounds, right? <laughs> and that, the, the healings, the, the, they're like a, a foretaste of the healing that is to come. They're a demonstration in real time of what Jesus has ultimately come to do, which is to bring healing and restoration, restoration to bodies and to legs, to limbs, to eyes, to ears, to souls, and ultimately bring about the restoration of everything. And so these miracles, they're signs of wonders. They're signs and wonders. They're signs because they're pointing ahead to something, the restoration of all things. They're a foretaste of the kingdom. So they authenticate the gospel. They're a foretaste of the kingdom. And then thirdly, it's our last observation, they coexist alongside suffering. This is important because there is an expression of Christianity, particularly popular in America today, uh, associated with something called the prosperity gospel, which basically assumes that God's will is for you to experience your best life now. And so your miracle is on the way, your breakthrough is coming, you know, uh, the best is yet to come. And, and, and it, it's feigned as if God is here ultimately to be a, a means to your end of living your great American dream. And of course, that is so foreign to the life and way of Jesus. Jesus says, in this world, you will experience tribulation. Paul, when he visited his churches after he planted them, his core message was, through much tribulation, you will enter the kingdom of God. And you see this in, in the lives. The apostles are not there, you know, with the healing power of Jesus present simply to make their own lives better. Ultimately, you know, Stephen gets stoned James is going to be thrust through with the sword. Peter will be crucified upside down. The apostle John will be boiled in oil. Suffering is a part of a normal Christian life. 
And so the healing restorative power of Jesus as it breaks out in this world today is there to authenticate the gospel. It is there to uh, be a foretaste of the age to come. And yet it, it is not there so that all hospital rooms might be emptied in this present age or all pain might be eradicated. No, it coexists alongside of suffering. So now let's ask this question. If it's true that Jesus is alive, that he's been raised, that he's exalted, should we expect that Jesus would heal in the same way that we read about in the New Testament today? And I think the answer to that question is, on one hand, it's a little bit complicated. You know, St. Augustine, when he was reflecting on this in his book, his masterful book, The City of God, uh, he says that the original... uh, particular miraculous signs and wonders surrounding the apostles were brilliant and conspicuous. In order to confirm this message as it was initially going out, the most powerful and palpable miracles would be needed to confirm their message as it went out. But as the gospel has gone out, it has continued to go out in this kind of power, though maybe not with this precise kind of brilliance and conspicuous nature you read about in the New Testament. Now, here's an issue, though, that you might have or I might have. So some of you in this room, if I were to go around and ask you, how many of you have experienced some form of healing in your life? I would bet that actually many, many of you would raise your hand and say, I've got a story. I've got a testimony to tell, right? And, um, but, but there are some of you who, that's not your story, Your story is one of you watch other people with their stories and you wonder, why not me? And you wonder, is this all true? I've prayed uh, for for people who I, like if there's anybody who should have been, it was was my dad, it was was my son, and and they they weren't, and why not? And what's going on here? Jesus is alive. And like, what are we supposed to make? And you, you, you can have doubts and you can find yourself feeling skeptical. You can have yourself, uh, you can find your, uh, yourself w- with, you know, experiencing a hard time believing this stuff about the miraculous. You know, the 20th century New Testament scholar, liberal, uh, liberal scholar Rudolf Boltman, uh, he, he raised this question. He said, look, in an age of electricity and air travel, can we really still believe in the miracles that we see in the New Testament? And he was drawing a card from somebody earlier on uh, back in the 18th century, whose name was David Hume, who's like the father of modern-day skepticism. And what David Hume essentially said was that um, uniform experience precludes the miraculous. He said uniform human experience precludes the miraculous. In other words, uh, he, Like, look, he would say, look, nobody's experienced the kind of stuff you read about in the New Testament. Ergo, it must not be true. We must treat it with extreme skepticism. And I think that the global church today might go back and challenge David Hume with this challenge. They might say, you know, maybe what you're referring to is the uniform experience of 18th century secular you know, skeptical, well-educated European white men. (laughs) (laughs) Because as the gospel's gone out, 
The global church, the historic church, the ancient church has a different story to tell. Uh, Justo Gonzalez uh, puts it like this. He says, the truth is, however, that what Boltman declared to be impossible, namely that we can believe in miracles in the day of electricity, is not just possible, it's even frequent. Throughout the world, including much of the Spanish-speaking community of faith, people not only use electricity and radio, but also computers and the internet to tell of the great wonders that God has performed in their lives. Malaysian Bishop Hua Teng put it like this. He said, Western theology invariably asks the question, are miracles possible? This, of course, addresses the enlightenment problem of a closed universe. In much of Asia, that's a non-question because the miraculous is assumed and fairly regularly experienced. And then Chinese scholar Edmund Tang, who's done uh, his academic work on the rise of Christianity in East Asia, puts it like this. He says, all Christian churches in China practice some form of healing. In fact, according to some surveys, 90% of new believers cite healing as a reason for their conversion. This is especially true in the countryside where medical facilities are often inadequate or non-existent. You know, um, I, I picked up a book a while back. It was a big two-volume, like, academic work by a New Testament scholar whose name is Craig Keener. And the title of the book was Miracles. And what Keener did was um, uh, he meticulously reach, researched uh, a wide ranging of accounts of miracles and, and just got down into the weeds because he wanted to challenge so much of the skepticism that was popular in, in the academy that he was working in. And, and what he discovered and what he, he relays in this book, and in this book, by the way, Craig Keener is an academic stud. Uh, he got his PhD at Duke. He is hardcore. And um, what, what, he, what he kind of discloses in this book is that healings and exorcisms and signs and wonders are way more common in our world today than many of us might realize. He said, in a Pew Forum study of 10 nations some years ago uh, of charismatic churches, they found that roughly 200 million people had experienced some sort of uh, healing or exorcism or, or something that, that would be identified as a sign or wonder. So there's nothing uniform about human experience when it comes to this issue. Another study showed that non-charismatic churches in those same countries, 39% of those believers had experienced or met someone who experienced divine healing. Now, Kidder goes on to say that, of course, many of these reports are spurious. Uh, some are, you know, placebo effects uh, uh, or, or luck or coincidence, you know. Um, but if you dig into the weeds, what you discover, he says, is that there are literally tens of thousands of verified examples of legit healings. And in the book, he documents literally hundreds of cases from all over the world. And so I just want to share just a few, few brief ones with you. So the first comes from Keener's own family. So Keener's married to an African woman whose sister died when she was just two years old. She stopped breathing for over an hour and she was carried to a little village where she was prayed for and she came back to life. And the, his wife and her sister and the mother-in-law all verify this. He gives another example uh, from Dr. Katho uh, from Bunia. 
And this was an African PhD, and he had never experienced divine miracles before. And he was out doing ministry in the bush when a woman who was blind came to him and asked for prayer. And they prayed for her, and in the middle of the prayer, she began crying out, I can see, I can see. And she remained sighted for life. Uh, again, these are well-researched, well-documented cases. Another came from a girl who died eight hours earlier. And they brought her to uh, the witch doctors out in the bush, and they sacrificed some animals and smeared blood around her ears and mouth, and they were trying to bring her back to life. And then when that failed, they brought her to the village pastor, and, um, uh, and, and when they came, he rebuked them and said, you should have come to me first, you know. And then he prayed for her, and she came back to life, and there was a revival that broke out in the village. And that's, of course, in the developing world. You say, well, what about in the United States? Well, uh, there's another well-documented case that comes from Dr. Chauncey Crandall in Florida. And there was a man who died of a heart attack. He was dead for 40 minutes. His extremities had begun to grow cold and dark. And Dr. Crandall was invited to come in and pronounce the man dead. So he walked in, pronounced him dead. He was walking out of the hospital room when he felt a voice say to him, go back and pray for him. So he turned around, he went back in, and he prayed for him. And um, the nurse was already washing the body down, and the doctor comes and just kind of lays hands on him and begins praying for him. And she's like, what is going on? And then he says, I want you to shock the patient for me. And, and she's like, what? What are you talking about? And then she did, and immediately he came back to life, and the nurse started screaming, Dr. Crandall, Dr. Crandall, what have you done? You know, and... Um, but there, there's also a series of healings documented in the Southern Medical Journal from 2010 of deaf Muslims in Mozambique uh, who were given hearing, and this led to a massive, like, movement of new church growth. And, you know, it's not just in our world today that these types of things are happening and breaking out. This is also true throughout church history. For, for example... St. Augustine, one of the great thinkers in church history, was initially skeptical of miracles. He said, look, they probably don't happen anymore. But in, in his famous book, The City of God, which is his argument in favor of Christianity, he devotes uh, several chapters giving an apologetic for Christianity based upon well-documented and well-cited healings. It's interesting, Craig Kinner mentioned this in his book. I went back, I, I'm like, really? You know, I pulled City of God off my shelf Chapter 22, or uh, book 22, chapter 8, there's all of these well-documented accounts of deaf people hearing and lame people walking and cancer being healed with names and some certified by medical professionals of his day. That's St. Augustine in the 5th century. Uh, Blaise Pascal, one of the great philosophers and scientists who was also a believer, recounts in his journal a story of his niece who was instantly healed of a disease on her face. John Wesley, in, in one of his journals, documents praying for a friend who died and came back to life. And this is just a smattering of examples that Craig Keener gives. In his, I'm just giving you a little summary so you don't have to read like all like 800 pages. Unless Robert wants to. He can read it on behalf of us all. I was listening to an interview with Craig Keener, and he was asked this question, how has writing this book affected you? And listen to what he said. He said, in the case of miraculous accounts, in the beginning, I was asking people really hard questions. 
I was coming at them with really skeptical questions. But after a while, it wore down my skepticism because there was such an abundance of evidence. Sometimes corroborating eyewitnesses and medical documentation, eventually, I stopped trying to be neutral and I just said, I believe. <laughs> now, what does all this mean? What this authenticates, according to the New Testament, that Jesus is alive and that he is seated at the Father's right hand and that he holds all authority in heaven and on earth and he's giving us a little foretaste of ultimately what is to come. You can trust in this Jesus. You can trust Jesus with your own life and with your body in the present and ultimately in the age to come in the future. You can trust Jesus. And we're going to invite you in just a few minutes when you come forward for prayer or for, for, to receive the Lord's Supper, there's going to be some folks up here to pray. And we're going to invite you, if you have something in your life that you want to trust Jesus to work on your behalf, just walk over to these people and say, could you pray for me? And we're going to spend some time in prayer. So you can trust Jesus. But in the same breath as I say all of this, I just want to close with this. Though healing happens much, much, much more often in our world, healing does not happen. And I think we need to be careful in a conversation like this that a theology of, the, of glory does not too quickly override a theology of the cross. In this world, there is and will be suffering and tribulation. And in my own life personally, Alicia and I, we have prayed for so, like, we had an abnormal number of our friends when our kids were little, moms or dads who died way too young of cancer, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. And it seemed like for some of these people, they, our church had never prayed for anyone more than we had prayed for this person, and yet still they died. And so we need to be careful not to allow a theology of glory to override a theology of the cross. But John Wimber did once say, I'd rather pray for a thousand people and one be healed than pray for no people and have no one be healed. Of course, there's a darker side to that statement because when you hold out an expectation of healing, when the 999 walk away, they can always find themselves asking, why the one and not the many? Why them and not me? And listen, I know there are a lot of questions in this room when it comes to these issues because many of you, you have experienced stuff in your life. You do trust God, but you have had a number of people and situations and you're just like, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you heal here? Jesus, you're alive. Jesus, your power is real. Jesus, act. Why? Why don't you do something? And look, the answer to that question is way, way, way beyond my pay grade. I don't know. I, I don't know why the one and not the 999. But I know this. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked among us and plunged himself into a sin-sick world full of disease and terror and ugliness, and he bore in his own body on the tree our own sickness and suffering. You know, we oftentimes think about Christ bearing our sin, and surely he did. 
But the Bible also says that in his body, he also bore our sickness. He was stricken so that you and I might be healed, so that he might gather up all of the ugly, ill, sin-sick world and bring it to an end on the cross and burst forth into the world on the third day, opening up the hope and possibility that in the age to come, there will be no more tears or crying or sickness. All will be healed. Bodies will be made known. Everything will be reshaped and remolded by the glorious resurrection power of Jesus. You know, there's um, a famous piece of Christian art painted by an artist called Matthias Grunewald, and it was originally painted to be put over the altar in a monastery that cared for people who were suffering from the plague and who had skin diseases. And it's fascinating because when you look closer at the body of Jesus, what you notice is that his own body, the, the artist has carefully put skin lesions. And, and, and the kind of disease that a body, or the kind of damage that the plague might do to a body, he painted into the body of Jesus to say to all of these patients and to all of us, that Christ came into this world so that we might not be alone in our suffering and our pain. He bore it in his own body. Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone in a sick and broken world. You will our healing. You will our wholeness. And God, we long and ache for the day when finally and fully your kingdom breaks out in, in, in all of its fullness and our lives are, are finally and completely made whole. But you have told us to come and just to pray and to ask. And so God, we want to do that today. We want to ask that you would work on our behalf and in our lives and for family members and for our own lives. And as we approach this table, God, may you reaffirm to us that we belong to you, that we've been purchased by your blood, by your love. And may we respond to that goodness with great assurance and hope in you. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, whose body was broken for us and whose blood was shed for us. Amen.